Welcome home. You're listening to the 180 Church Podcast with Dr. Sammy and friends. Dr. Sammy and friends are resting this week and will return next week. However, we have a leader from our local church community giving today's message. You could all be seated. Welcome those who joined us in person and online. I'll just give you a moment to practice some silence and solitude as we center ourselves, as we open the word so that the word can penetrate deeply within our hearts, whether we're believers or seekers, I believe the scriptures can speak to us in a way we can understand. Right before Paul comes up and gives us the word today, will you bow your heads with me? And let's exhale. Yeah, let it all out. All the automatic, ruminating, anxious thoughts that you might be carrying with you that's weighing you down. The Bible tells us to cast our cares upon the Lord for he cares for us. And inhale the presence of God, his transcending peace, and his will for your life. The author and the finisher of our faith. All God's people pray. Amen. Let's welcome our own very Paul Lee here <laughs> as he gives us the word today. Okay, cool. Um, hi. <laughs> So, uh, first slide. Thank you. Um, so, some of you know, uh, you may have heard down the grapevine, that uh, my cousin's wife, Hannah, recently passed away. Um, and so these days, I've been thinking a lot about the funeral, um, the implications for the family going forward, and how we uh, collectively process death and other significant experiences in our life. Um, before and after the viewing, uh, there was a photo slideshow um, projected on a large monitor there at the at the viewing and there were dozens of still photos arranged in a loop that captured moments of Hannah's life as a child growing up at graduations at her wedding with kids in health and in sickness and um, while these photos communicate moments of joy pain resilience love um, it's not that the photos themselves uh, it's not the photos themselves but it's the stories that sit behind them that give them significance and meaning. Um, stories about a first date, stories about conquering hiking trails of loss, of hardship, of growth, and moments of clarity. Um, so today, I'd like to share my own reflection on the importance of stories in our understanding of the world and ourselves. So with that, uh, next slide. So people are meaning-making machines. I think that's pretty indisputable. Um, it's pretty commonplace now. Uh, humans give meanings to observed behaviors and to felt sensations. And over time, these meanings become codified in cultural and linguistic systems. The representational and sensory qualities of natural language converge in metaphor. Uh, we'll break all that down. But um, even now, uh, we have hundreds, if not thousands, of stimuli screaming for your attention. The chair against your back, uh, the temperature of the room, uh, all of that stuff. But we attend to the few things that matter to us. And uh, the moment we try to communicate 
those few details that capture our attention to others and even to ourselves, we codify them in language that contains a lot of noise and ambiguity. Um, this is where we run into the problem of literary, literary translation. Um, and anyone that speaks more than one language or is familiar with more than one language understands this. Um, we run into untranslatable words all the time. Uh, unpacking one word takes an essay just to scratch the surface. Why? Because the meaning of words is coded in the relationship of each word to one another. Um, words don't exist in a vacuum. And so some words are dependent on other words to derive fuller meaning. And likewise, some ideas are dependent on other ideas uh, to draw full meaning. And so we say that translation demands a deep understanding of both grammar and of culture. And on the other side of the spectrum, there are words and ideas that seemingly everyone understands. Um, almost by default, and that's because so many words or ideas in our mind rely on our understanding of this core idea. Um, the more ideas are dependent on a given idea, the more fundamental we say that that idea is. Um, and what is it fundamental to? It's fundamental to our culture. All right, so in a past sermon, I briefly touched on the idea of culture. Culture is composed of shared values, and values are communicated through stories. Uh, shared stories allow us to share culture and give us a better basis for communication and understanding each other. Uh, that is, through shared stories that signal values, we have a bedrock of agreement. We wouldn't have this bedrock otherwise. Um, if we zoom out from that uh, bedrock of agreement, uh, we run into the question, so how does an entire civilization share a worldview? Um, and we'll come back to that idea. But on another note, uh, next slide. So in the family context, uh, we share experiences through stories. And some of the stories uh, are lived and relived, and they become fundamental to our experience. And it's through that archive of shared familial stories that we come to understand ourselves, our place in the world, how we struggle, how we overcome. And one of the repeating narratives in my life is moving. Uh, I move a lot. Um, and as some of you know, my dad's a UMC pastor, uh, which required us to move frequently almost every three years, like clockwork. And you can imagine what uh, the experience might be like as a kid, making friends, moving away, making friends, moving away. And over time, at least for me, uh, you can say that I developed uh, a feeling of learned helplessness against the inevitable move, and I dreaded each move. Um, I feared the sudden separation that came with moving, so much so that at some point I just gave up on making friends altogether. But um, one move was especially painful. And, uh, and that move was when I left Staten Island for Austin. Um, so uh, I had a community, uh, some of you all were part of it, uh, at Mambek Sun, uh, MBS. Um, and that was my first real experience of life in community. Uh, we saw each other at school, we saw each other at church, uh, on the volleyball courts. And for an adolescent, um, what else could you ask for? Uh, but three years in, and rather suddenly, my, friend, uh, my family received instruction to move to Austin. And that's when the comforts of familiarity and routine were swept from under me, right? Um, I remember moving, uh, starting over in an unfamiliar landscape, uh, not knowing anyone. And it was so daunting because of the stark contrast that I had right before um, at Mambek Sun. But for a while, uh, I gave up on people uh, 
and I gave up on the thought of, uh, I gave up because of the thought of having to start over. Um, I didn't want to have to deal with starting friends again. Um, of course, I had the nagging fear of being left out and being an outsider, um, but I feared the trauma of separation even more. Next slide. So some of you may have resonated with an experience like mine, um, an experience of moving. And it may have been hyperlinked to a story in your own life, or maybe a movie you've watched or a book you've read. Um, within the Christian context and in the Western context, it's likely that that shared corpus of stories that you referenced includes the Bible. Um, the truth is, my own experience um, take on greater meaning because they hyperlink to older, more fundamental narratives within the Bible. Um, and that's how I've come to understand and interpret my own stories, um, linking to and drawing from the larger stories. Uh, Jordan Peterson, a clinical psychologist, he expresses this relationship this way. Uh, imagine you have an aggregation of texts in a civilization, and you ask, which are the fundamental texts? And the answer is the texts upon which most other texts depend. Fundamental authors become part of the Western canon because those texts influence more than other texts. And if you think of all of that as a hierarchy with the Bible at its base, which is certainly the case, now imagine that that entire corpus of linguistic production, how do you understand that? You sample it. You, you listen to stories uh, and listening to people talk. You sample the whole domain, and then you build a low-resolution representation of that inside you, and then you listen and you see through that. And so it isn't that the Bible is true. It's that the Bible is the precondition for the manifestation of truth, which makes it way more than just true. Um, so then, to put it simply, what is the Bible? Uh, the Bible is a library of oral and written history, right? It's a oral rec recollection of stories passed down from one generation to the next. Um, and it's the oral and written history uh, and as the oral and written history gets passed down, new stories get added on top of that. Um, and new stories alluded to older stories. Um, therefore, the Bible isn't just one book, but it's a library of hyperlinking stories with new stories sampling and breathing life into older stories. Um, okay, next slide. And so we're going to talk about uh, the main passage for today. Uh, it references a story about the Israelites. And in a way, they're also moving. They're leaving Egypt. Um, they're leaving Egypt with its systems, its cultures, its comforts, its responsibilities. Um, Moses leads his people out of Egypt, out of the tyrannical rule of Pharaoh, but they don't immediately wander into the promised land. Instead, they go into the desert. Why? Because despite having left, um, we carry a lot of baggage. Um, we're all prisoners of our own misconceptions, both uh, psychologically and socially. So let's say we leave Egypt, we free ourselves from those systems, then what? Um, then there's nothing. <laughs> um, if you leave everything that you knew behind, then you're literally starting from zero. Um, and so, yeah, uh, so we're nowhere. At least in Egypt, under the rule of Pharaoh, um, we had guidance. Um, and that's what these people are telling themselves. Uh, we see that in the passage. Um, people have a lot of nostalgia, uh, even for tyranny, um, because we tell ourselves at least we had enough to eat, at least as slaves we knew who we were. Um, so people don't change their pre uh, preconceptions. They don't want to end up in the desert um, 
because the worse the tyranny, the worse the fundamental beliefs that we had, the, the worse the desert. Um, so it's no wonder that people don't move. They don't, they don't intentionally want to do this. Um, so the Israelites are out in the desert. Um, why are they there for 40 years? Uh, maybe it's because it takes three generations to recover from tyranny, um, from bad habits. Uh, the Israelites start worshiping idols. It's an ideology that they knew. Um, they knew it from Egypt. It's what they carried with them. And that's because they didn't have anything to orient themselves in the desert. What else would they go to? Um, they're not under tyrannical rule, but nothing's familiar. And so they fight with themselves, they fight with Moses, and they spend all day, and Moses has to spend all day judging them and judging their conflicts. And so we arrive upon this narrative. God sends poisonous snakes to bite them. And while this is happening, the Israelites finally break down, and they go to Moses and they ask him to talk with God. And God says, go make an image of a snake in bronze, put the snake on a pole, and stick it in the ground. And the Israelites took the bronze, uh, have to look at the bronze snake in order to live. And then the story abruptly ends, like literally it just ends there. And then we're left to wonder, why did the Israelites feel compelled to tell the story to their kids? Next story, <laughs> next slide, sorry. Um, okay, so uh, some other tidbits. After college, uh, I worked at a bunch of psychology labs at University of Texas Austin. One of them happened to be a clinical lab specializing in fear research. So uh, specifically arachnophobia, fear of spiders, uh, fediophobia, fear of snakes, and panic attacks. So I would induce these things, people would freak out, and they would eventually get better. Uh, <laughs> so we use something called exposure therapy, uh, the gradual exposure to a fear situation or an object to help clients become less sensitive to fear triggers over time. And the body simply can't sustain a fight or flight response for long durations. So gradually the response that they had towards the snake or the spider or whatever uh, became milder and milder. And this type of cognitive behavioral therapy has been particularly effective for treating OCD and phobias. And generally all fields of psychotherapy operate under the premise that um, if you really look at what you're terrified of, you will get braver, um, or at least that's the idea. And so going back to the passage, you can imagine that with this understanding of psychology and the fear response, how uh, the passage might come to mean something different. Um, God lifts up that which the people fear, bringing it into the light, and the Israelites are told to gaze upon it so that they may live. Um, God doesn't chase away the snakes. He opens up the possibility for the Israelites to become braver um, because that's better than being safe. It's a more reliable cure for terror. Next slide. So in the Gospels, um, just hyperlinking to the New Testament, Jesus says that he must be lifted up like the serpent in the desert. Um, we'll read this real fast, uh, just the first two verses, or three verses. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Um, I won't go on to read the rest, but um, you get the general gist. But notice verse 14, which is uh, the connection that we're trying to draw. Um, Just as Moses left, lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. All right, next, verse, uh, next slide. So in verse 14, Jesus hyperlinks his own passion narrative to the bronze snake 
to the stick in numbers, uh, to the snake on a stick in numbers. Um, Carl Jung, uh, who's a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst who founded analytical psychology, thought of the passion, passion story as a limit story. Um, so it's a story in which all facets of the story are taken to its limit. Um, you cannot, you literally cannot, write a more tragic story than the passion narrative. Um, it's a story of the aggregation of everything that people are afraid of. There is no death more painful than crucifixion. Plus, you know it's coming. Plus, one of your best friends betrayed you into it. Plus, your people turn against you. Plus, you're led by, led, uh, they're led by a tyrant who doubts truth. Plus, you're a victim of the Roman Empire. Plus, you're completely innocent. Plus, everyone knows it. Plus, they choose a criminal to be released instead of you, even though they know he's a criminal and they know you're innocent. Plus, you're young. Plus, you've done nothing wrong. Plus, you've, uh, all you've done is help people. And so, literally, you cannot, <laughs> you cannot tell a more tragic story. Um, and so, as the church, we've been looking at this limit story for 2,000 years. And sometimes we need to pause and think, what are we doing? Why, why do we tell ourselves this narrative over and over again? Um, well, around Easter, you visit the Stations of the Cross. Um, we hear the crucifixion story, and we move from station to station, gazing at our bronze snakes. Maybe your fear is that uh, you resonate with Mary in the Pieta, um, because you have to let your baby go into the dangerous world, Mary's fear. Maybe you fear being Pilate. You doubt truth, but you'll go along with the crowd instead. Maybe your fear is being Judas because you're capable of betraying your best friend. Um, maybe your fear is being the mob, following the crowds blindly. Uh, maybe you're the released criminal because you know you're guilty, but you got released anyway. And all of that, that's us, that's you. And all of those things that you hate and are terrified by, you have to confront those bronze snakes, and that's what the cross does. You look at it, what do you see? You see terror, you see pain, you see suffering, but you also see a glimpse of hope. Um, we see that in the resurrection. And we also see the mechanisms to overcome fear, right? Moving on, next slide. So going back to the story about the move, um, it wasn't until later in my life uh, that I was able to make peace with moving um, I heard my parents' side of the story, um, and that's when my fears and my trauma kind of had to go full circle. Um, I, I learned that they also had to sacrifice. Um, they struggled with the moves themselves. Um, it wasn't their choice, and how my parents <laughs> moved out of obedience um, to go and serve a church, um, that, was, that wasn't necessarily their call. Um, my dad didn't just one day decide that, and uh, we just went as a family. So when I heard that, um, when, and specifically it was the way that they put it, um, that this sacrifice that they had to go through as much as me, um, for them, it was out of obedience to go and serve the church, right? It, it was, it was in, in one sense, you could call it worship. It was their act of worship to God, and that narrative completely rewrote um, how I had interpreted my pain. So when I realized that moving, uprooting myself and going to the unknown, 
was an act of worship for my family. It wasn't an act of worship that I could claim as my own until um, I had to confront my own pain and fear to make that connection. Um, yeah. So, uh, uh, so I want to conclude with this. Uh, just, I guess, like my story, um, be intentional about uh, telling stories, especially with your own families, um, and bind them to the gospel. Um, hyperlink them in creative ways. Um, draw from inspiration uh, from their, the narratives there. And the stories we, we recall and share not only eventually shape us, but um, they filter how we see and how we engage with the world. Uh, so I want to invite P. Sam up um, to close. We're going to call Paul the crying preacher now. Yeah. Everyone's just going to expect the tears in the end in anticipation. We're not even paying attention to the text anymore. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you know, I think that um, we were talking about this. Uh, being a pastor's kid for Paul, Grace, my wife, and even my sons, you learn the suffering of... And, and the proclivity of humanity's just tendency to sin. And in the church, you see an aggregation of that, the best, the microcosm, the best and the worst of people. And in the human story, not even Christian, through the lens of just modern psychology, as Paul just quoted Peterson, he's a little mixed bag, but he has a lot of good things. He's definitely a smart guy, but... He's a mixed bag. Um, just, just remember, he's not a Christian, okay? Um, but the, the question people are asking is not um, what, what is the point of life? That's not really, that's a transcending question eventually you get to if you evolve. The question people ask, is there a purpose to the aggregation of all these experiences in my life? Is there really a motif, a something weaving through the experiences of my life that give it meaning? Not for the sake of meaning making, but that there actually is an author that really gives this sense of existence a real purpose. Purposelessness and meaninglessness is the greatest fear of humanity. That when we die, it means nothing. Vanity is at the crux of that. So when we look at Egypt and the people of God for 40 years, what they're really struggling with is the human story, right? It's the rational of tyranny, the rationality of tyranny, because when there is tyranny, there is law and order. Truth is, we like people telling us what to do. We don't think we like it, but we do, because there is the other tension of the burden of autonomy. When you have to choose on your own, it's fun for a little bit. And then you go, oh, I'm not living under my, my, my parents' roof anymore. Then you go, the rent comes due. You're like, oh my God, the burden of autonomy. 
And now you have to make your own choices and there's burden to that. But then when you look at Jesus, he takes these two tensions and rather than giving his life to be self-centered, he literally submits himself to tyrannical rule of Roman, the Roman Empire, the, the Jewish leaders, and he dies on a cross. And the aggregation of all his experiences lead to a purpose that now has astounded planet Earth. And now he has more followers than the population in the first century. Right? Over 2 billion people have been astounded by this reality that all his suffering, all his pain, aggregated to love other people. That's why we're here. So if you stand with me today, if you're a believer today, that's what it means to say, I follow Christ. Christ is leading my life. I want the aggregation of my life, all my pain, all my joy, all my experiences to lead to a purpose of loving others in my family, in my neighborhood, to my friends, and my pain serving and consoling and healing the pain around me through my suffering. That's the beauty of the gospel. Because Jesus doesn't live his life through a lens of heathenism. He doesn't live for self-consumption. He produces. And that's what's setting the world free. And Peterson is right. It is the aggregation of the greatest story, and it's the foundation of Western civilization and truth itself. But you know what? It is true. That's the best part about it. So if you lift your hands with me today, will you pray as we sing this today that the aggregation of all my experiences, the tension of all the things I struggle with would become to serve like Jesus a greater purpose. Let's make this our prayer. Everything was done. 
before you this afternoon for the seeker this gives us that motif that weaves through the experiences and it gives us a calling to a purpose not just a byproduct of the binarity probability but intentionality of God's story and ultimately that's the only thing that will matter that my joy and my pain has a purpose and the ultimate purpose is to serve others in the midst of those two tensions for the believer it makes sense of everything that we're going through and have gone through and will go through. That God doesn't waste anything in our lives for the greater good. And the wholeness of new creation. And that's why we're joining God to restore the beauty in all things. And I pray you would see that clearly, that everything that you've gone through and will will be served and will be used for a greater purpose. The purpose is beautiful, but the process can be awful. That's what makes it awfully beautiful. Will you bow your heads for the benediction? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. All God's people pray. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Hi, everyone. Happy Sunday. So glad to see you all here. My name is Haley, and I'm a member here at 180 Church, and I will be sharing some community news with you. First off, let's talk about tithes and offering. If you're a member here at 180 Church, we ask that you continue to keep God at the center of your finances and to tithe faithfully, which you can do using Venmo, Zelle, Chase QuickPay, or PayPal. If you're a visitor here with us today, we welcome you to our service and there's no financial obligation to give. But if you'd like to make a donation, you can do so with the methods above. Next, we have Bible Reading Group. We have an Instagram handle and a Tumblr page at 180BRG, where you can join us at any time to read the Bible. Feel free to follow along and feed your soul with the Word of God. Amen. Next, there are devotionals on sale at the 180 Cafe. They're great to help you get in the habit of praying and connecting with God every day. Sometimes I find it hard to find, form the words to pray, but these devotionals have been so helpful and inspirational. They're available at the 180 Cafe and it's an honor system. So you can purchase them via Venmo or QuickPay. Speaking of prayers, we have our prayer hotline. We invite you to use this resource to ask for prayer for anything or anyone in your life and it's completely confidential. You can text 5397PRAYER or email prayer at 180church.tv and know that there will be a team praying for you on the other end. 
prayers are so powerful and I can't tell you how many times my prayers were heard and answered. So I want to encourage you to get out there and pray and ask for prayer for where two or three are gathered in his name, God is with them. Yes. So let's talk about social media. There, these are the ways you can stay connected with us throughout the week. We have several media outlets from Facebook to Instagram to Dr. Sammy's Twitter page and even our YouTube page. We are very active on social media and there are multiple ways to share the message with your friends and family and also stay connected in the community. Let's not forget about our YouTube live stream. We know that things pop up and it's not always possible to physically attend Sunday service, but not to worry because Sunday service is being live streamed weekly on YouTube, so you never have to miss another service. So say hello to the YouTube viewers. Hello. And it's also a great way to share the gospel with friends and family. Next up is small groups. Small groups are a great way to process what you heard on Sundays with brothers and sisters along the journey of faith. We know that no one is meant to do faith alone and small groups have been an amazing way to know that we are in this together. It's also a great way to um, get to know each other, grow deeper in, with, in relationship with each other and reflect and apply sermons to our daily lives. And honestly, it's so much fun. I look forward to it every week to meet with the group and you know, we just have fun doing life together. So that's great. Um, adult groups meet on Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Young adult groups meet on Thursdays at 7.30 p.m. College Fellowship meets on Mondays at 7.30. And if you need any additional info, please speak to any of the greeters in 180 shirts or hoodies. Now, this is the exciting one. Are you, are you guys ready? Okay, I, I want to introduce 180 merch, okay? I know, you've been all waiting for this. It's not exclusive anymore. You can purchase your 180 merch at the 180 Cafe. There's a variety of tops in different fabulous colors, all donning the stylish 180 um, emblem and other cool designs. Like some of them have like cool designs on the back. Not mine, but others. Um, so you can get one of those. Uh, after service, you can head straight to the 180 Cafe to purchase your new 180 shirt, hoodie, or sweatshirt and they can be purchased with the same honor system as the devotionals. If you have any questions, you can speak to our merch designer, Andy, wherever he is. Oh, he's in the back, there he is. Um, and he can help you. And I can't wait to twin with all of you once you purchase your merch. Okay, next we have Day in the Sun. Our next Day in the Sun will be on May 15th at 12.30 p.m. We will be meeting at the East Pintum in Central Park. So, be on the lookout for an email to RSVP. Let's pray for beautiful May weather and an awesome time of fellowship. Also, let's start thinking about the people in our lives who we can invite and share the good news with. Uh, now, for those of you with the heart to serve or feel like you're being led to serve, we have children's ministry. We need volunteers to serve, love, and teach our church's youngest members. They are really doing meaningful and soul-filling work there. My children are learning that they are God's treasures, like I told you last time. And also, my daughter always gets super excited for Sunday school. She says, oh, she loves Sunday school, so they're having a good time there. Um, they are building relationships and growing up in this community feeling loved and known, and that's really special. So if you want to be friends with our community's littlest members and be loved by me and other parents, go see Michelle Kim or Pastor Lydia for more details. 
Next, we have cafe volunteers. Coffee brings me so much joy, and I know it brings you guys joy too. So you can share some joy by serving up a cup of coffee before service. No barista skills are required. So if you want to serve or impress people with your latte art, please see Danny O oh or Wendy Lee for more details. And lastly, we have greeting volunteers. Who doesn't love a friendly face when they walk in? I know everybody does. And if you want to be that friendly face that brings smiles and makes people feel welcomed, this is for you. If you're interested, please see Danny O oh or Wendy Lee for more details. Now those are all of our announcements we have today.